mind talking about uh, friends that are in the audience, associations that we've had over the years, and fellowship that we've enjoyed in labors together, but that's not the reason I'm here. I invite your attention this evening to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James 2, beginning in verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a man in vile raiment, and ye have respect unto him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor man, uh, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then uh, partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you unto the judgment seats? And do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? The book of James is in the category of the general epistles. Because it was not written to a specific congregation as such or to a specific individual. But it was written to the church in general. In James chapter 1 and verse 1, James the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Twelve tribes is a reference to the church. We read in our Bibles in Matthew 19 and verse 28 where Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, ye which have followed me, in the regeneration shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of, of Israel. He points out the fact that when he comes in glory, sitting on the throne, uh, they shall sit upon twelve thrones also, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Of course, the twelve tribes there is a reference to the church. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16, Paul speaks of the Israel of God. That's a reference to the church. Again, in Romans chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29, Paul said there, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and of the spirit and not of the flesh. And so Paul was simply saying that the spiritual Israel today is the church, and we as, as Christians are, in a sense, spiritual Jews. And so James was writing to uh, those who were of the 12 tribes, meaning of the church, generally speaking. It has sometimes been called the gospel of common sense because it is such a practical book. Martin Luther, of course, uh, referred to it as a right strawy epistle. I had heard somewhere that he had uh, later retracted that, but I have no proof of that. But he looked upon the book of James as being a right straw epistle because it uh, was contrary to his teaching on faith only. But uh, the book of James is a very practical book and one that is beneficial to us. In our text here, in James chapter 2, and in particular verse 7, we find the environment uh, of this uh, verse. 
uh, in the passages preceding and following. But James was dealing with the idea of the uh, partiality that was being shown or respect of persons being shown to the rich as opposed to the poor. And so he gives a scenario of bringing in someone or someone's coming into the assembly that was rich and giving him the uh, chief seat in the house, so to speak. And uh, the poor man, wearing vile raiment or uh, poor clothes or ragged clothes, uh, telling him, you go over there and stand. Uh, or you sit here, now notice he says, not just at my footstool, but under my footstool. And James asked the question, are you not partial and judges uh, of evil thoughts? Then James answers the, the, this idea of showing respect to persons by saying, uh, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Not that the poor individuals as such would be uh, individuals who would be, have greater faith necessarily, but that was the, that's the general rule. Usually those who are poor and who are needy recognize their uh, need for God more so than the rich. We know of many in the, in the Bible of whom we read that were wealthy and yet uh, they were uh, righteous men. Abraham, Job. But had not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which uh, he hath promised to them that love him? But the contrast is, you to whom he was writing, but you have despised the poor, he says. He went on to say, do not rich men oppress you. And draw you before the judgment seats. And then the verse under consideration this evening is, Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? That is, do not the rich blaspheme that worthy name. That's who he has reference to. So why would you show partiality toward the rich when they, in the main, are blaspheming that worthy name by which you're called? We should not be respecters of persons. I like Brother Hardiman's statement that we make it an invariable rule to treat every man with perfect civility, no matter what garb they may wear nor burden they may bear. There's a tendency on the part of individuals to show partiality to the rich as opposed to the poor man. But whether one is the beggar man on the street or the man king on the throne, we should not be a respecter of persons. In looking at this passage, notice that James asked the question. It's a rhetorical question. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? Yes, they do. What does it mean to blaspheme? The word blaspheme means to speak impiously, to vilify, specifically, specifically of those who, uh, by contemptuous speech, intentionally come short of the reverence due to God or sacred things. It is to speak evil or speak against God or sacred things. And James says here that the rich blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called. Of course, one can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We read in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 12, 31 and 32, when Jesus said, I say unto you all manner of evil... Or all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, 
but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh against a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. And of course, in Mark's account, the parallel account, he says, because they said uh, he hath an unclean spirit. In other words, he charged, they charged Jesus with having cast out uh, demons by Beelzebub. And in Mark chapter 3, and in verse, uh, verses 28 and 30, uh, 30, we read these words concerning uh, that parallel. Matthew, uh, Mark three twenty-eight through 30. Verily I say unto you, all sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath not forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. And so some were guilty even in the first century of having uh, blasphemed uh, the Lord and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But they blasphemed that worthy name by which you're called. The word worthy is a word that means properly beautiful or good. It means the idea of valuable or virtuous. And it is my judgment that James is alluding to the name Christian when he says, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called. The name Christian is found three times in the Bible, three times in the New Testament. You know them as well as I do. In Acts eleven twenty six, the latter part of that verse says, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. In Acts 26 and verse 28, King Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16, Peter says, If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf or in this name. What a worthy name to be able to wear the name Christian. It means someone who follows Christ, a follower of Christ. That's the idea. That's the meaning of it. And what makes it such a worthy name, what makes it such a valuable name is that it is a name that was not given by man. It is a God-given name. In Acts 11.26, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. wonder why it was the case that it was at Antioch that they were first called Christians when people were obeying the gospel up to that point, from Acts 2 onward, as we uh, spoke last night on Acts 2, up through Acts 11 until we get to verse 26, many had obeyed the gospel. But here we're, we see for the very first time that they were called Christians. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 62 and verse 2, we have this statement. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Here we have a prophecy concerning this new name. This name was not given by the enemies of the Lord in derision. This name was not a name that they gave to themselves it was a divinely given name. And Isaiah 62 and verse 2 tells us 
that is the case. And it tells us also as to the time frame when this name would be given. When the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, or the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. Well, the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. Righteousness here has reference to the system of righteousness, the gospel, the system whereby man is made right with God. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This shows us that the system of righteousness, or the gospel, is under consideration. And so when the Gentiles, and we could uh, substitute the word gospel here in Isaiah 62 and verse 2 and get the same idea. And the Gentiles shall see the gospel, that is, experience the gospel, not just see it from the standpoint of knowing that it's there, but experience it. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And yet thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Well, when did that take place? Well, in Acts 2, you have devout Jews that had obeyed the gospel. We see the spreading of the gospel from that point on, Acts 1 and verse 8 says that the apostles were witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. And as you continue reading through Acts, you see in Acts 8 that uh, Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So Samaritans obeyed the gospel. He then went on down to the road that leads from uh, Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert, and there he converted the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we see in Acts chapter 10, Peter's converting the first Gentile convert, Cornelius, in his household. And the gospel was now going to the Gentiles. And so we see when we turn to Acts 11, after a uh, repetition or repeating of Acts chapter 10 and the conversion of Cornelius, given by Peter as, in order, we see that in this statement is found. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so just simply from the standpoint of the, of the scriptures, without going into the original language, you can see that it's uh, a divinely given name. But even more. In Acts eleven twenty six, and the disciples were called Christians. The, word, uh, the words were called means divinely called. It's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 2, in reference to Joseph being told by the Lord in a dream to not go back to Jerusalem where Archelaus was, who was now in the place of his father Herod, but to go up, into, go up to Nazareth. There he was told by God in a dream. Same word. And then in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. doesn't matter what man says. God called her. That word called there means God called her. Divinely called an adulteress. Our civil courts may say that an individual, individual may have the right to be married, and they be, may, be, may be married in uh, the sight of man, 
But God calls it adulterous, an adulterous relationship. He calls it adultery. And so that's the same word, and there are many other examples that could be given. But so it is a divinely given name, and isn't that a wonderful thought? That we can wear a divinely given name, the name Christian. What a wonderful thought that is. Just the name Christian. A follower of Christ. Is that not what you want to be? A follower of Jesus Christ. Where can one wear this name? There's a statement found in Isaiah 56 and verse 5. Even to them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give in my house a new name. A name better than of sons and daughters. But what is his house? God's house is the church. In 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul said there, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Only those who are in the house of God, the church, can wear the name Christian. Rightly so. Divinely so. And it is a blessed privilege to be able to wear that name. We find in our Bibles, again, the second time the word Christian is used, or the name Christian is used, that worthy name, in Acts 26 and 28. Paul had appeared before Festus, and then Felix took Festus's place. And then Festus didn't know what he was going to do with Paul. He had no real charges against him, but he knew that he had appealed to Caesar. And so King Agrippa was in the area, and he asked King Agrippa to... Uh, about this case, or he mentioned it to him, and Agrippa says, well, I'll hear it tomorrow. I'd like to hear his case. I'd like to hear the man. And so, the next day, Paul appears before Agrippa, and he begins to make his case. And as he's making his case, Felix says, uh, much learning hath made thee mad. Thou art beside thyself, Paul. And Paul says, I'm not mad, most Noble Festa, uh, Felix, but I, treat, I speak for the words of truth and soberness. And then he said to Agrippa, Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? And the meaning there is, do you believe what the prophets said concerning the Christ? It wasn't simply that he questioned whether or not Agrippa knew who the prophets were, but do you know what they said? Do you not believe what they said concerning the Christ? Believest thou the prophets? I know thou believest, he says. And King Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul said, almost, he said, I would to God that not only thou, but all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. It wasn't simply preaching to Agrippa. He was preaching to all who were present on that occasion. What was he encouraging them to do? What was he trying to persuade them to be? Christians, just simple Christians. And isn't that what our plea is? To encourage people to be simple Christians. Nothing more, nothing less, to be Christians. He was not standing before Agrippa and those who were present on that occasion and trying to persuade them to become Roman Catholics or 
of the Greek Orthodox religion. He was not encouraging them to be that. Why, that religion did not begin until at the very earliest 606, A.D. 606, when Boniface III stood up and was recognized by uh, some as being the first pope. Paul was not encouraging him or those present to become Catholics or of the Eastern Orthodox religion. Paul was not standing before Agrippa on that occasion and trying to encourage them to become Lutherans. Why, Lutherans were not heard of until about 1517 or later. Why, it was in 1517, October the 31st, when uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the uh, church door of Wittenberg. And those who followed Luther were called Lutherans. But even Luther did not want people to call him after him, himself. He did not want that. He wanted people to follow Christ, though he didn't teach the truth. Paul was not encouraging individuals to become Lutherans. He was standing before Agrippa and those present on that occasion, encouraging them to be Christians, nothing more, nothing less. I would to God that all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. What was Paul? He was a Christian. Paul was not standing before this August crowd on this occasion and encouraging anyone to become a Presbyterian, a follower of Calvin. Calvin's doctrine was started in about 1535, and those who followed him were uh, called uh, by various names, but they were Calvinists, basically, followers of Calvin's doctrine. Depending on what nation they were in, they uh, were called by different names, Pur Puritans or Huguenots and various others. But Paul was not encouraging them to become uh, Presbyterians. He was not encouraging them to become a part of the Episcopal Church or the Church of England. The Church of England started in 1535, and you know the history as well as I do. And it's not a, a, a matter of uh, ill will toward uh, these various religious groups, but this is a matter of history. You can go to the history books and read this. You can't read it in the Bible. You have to go to a history book to read and read their histories as to when they began. And the Church of England began by Henry VIII in 1535 when because he wanted to divorce uh, Catherine of Aragon because he really wanted to marry Mary uh, Bolin uh, and he claimed it was because he didn't have a male heir and the Roman Catholic Church would not give him or grant him a divorce from Catherine of Aragon so he says, well, I'll do this. I'll just start my own church. I'll start my own church. A lot of people want to do that. We see that even today. You see all kinds of various churches that are started with all kinds of names. Why not be satisfied with the name that's in the Bible or the names that are in the Bible? But in 1535, you read of the beginning of the Church of England, which later in America became the Episcopalian Church. Paul was not encouraging individuals to become Episcopalians or of the Church of England, just Christians. 
Paul was not encouraging King Agrippa and those who were present on that occasion to become Methodists. Now I have friends that are in various uh, denominations, but I would not encourage them to become or stay in those religions, but to become simple Christians. The Methodist Church started by John Wesley in 1729. That's too late to be the, the church that you read of in the Bible, and uh, it's, too, it's too late to be, uh, you see, from this passage or from this statement that Paul was encouraging them to become Methodists. He wasn't encouraging them to be Methodists. Well, what about the Baptists? Was he encouraging anyone to become a Baptist? I've got friends that are Baptists. I've got family that are Baptists. Well, you can't read of the, the Baptist church and you can't read of Baptists until 1608 in Holland by, started by John Smith. That's from their own history books. Paul was not encouraging anyone to become a Baptist. He was not saying to King Agrippa, I would to God that all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am. A Baptist. You cannot read of the Baptist church in the New Testament. You cannot read of Baptist plural in the New Testament. You read of only one Baptist, John the Baptist, meaning John the Immerser, and he said he was going to quit. He said concerning Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. Paul was not encouraging Agrippa and those present to become Mormons. The Mormon church started in 1830 by Joseph Smith. He was not encouraging them to be that. He was not encouraging them to become Muslims, which according to history was started in 1610 when Muhammad received his first revelation, supposedly. He just simply wanted Agrippa and those present to be Christians. Christians, nothing more, nothing less. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16, If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. You know, the time may well come and may be closer than we realize when we may have to suffer for being Christians. We recognize that the apostles did in Acts 5, 40 and 41. They were told, they were beaten, and they were commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And the Bible tells us they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Earlier they had been threatened not to speak or preach anymore in Jesus' name. But in Acts 4, 19, we read that the apostle said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were not going to be muzzled. They were going to preach the truth regardless of the threats and regardless of the suffering that came their way. And Peter says, if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Nothing to be ashamed of if you suffer for righteousness' sake. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which are before you. And so to suffer for the cause of Christ is not a shame. There are many good, moral people in the denominations. You may have, I'm sure you have neighbors, you have friends, you may have family that are members of some denomination. But what we're talking about is whether or not an individual is a Christian. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? I want to ask a question for your consideration this evening, just for consideration. Suppose, and we know that there's nothing in the New Testament that tells us that Jesus shall ever set foot on this earth again. In fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, we shall meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But just suppose he were to come back to this earth. Where do you think he would go to church? Where do you think he would go to the services of the church? Where would he worship? Would he not worship as the first century church did, where his ambassadors worshipped? Would he not worship where the practices were authorized by him? Or would he worship in a place, in a congregation, where practices were unauthorized? You know, Paul says in Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by him. Where would Jesus worship? There are those, even in the church, who have the idea that there are Christians in all denominations. I deny that. I deny that there is one Christian in a denomination. There may be wayward members of the church that are in denominations, but if they are Christian, in the strictest sense of that word Christian, being a follower of Christ, they will not be in a denomination because they're not going to worship where the practices are unauthorized. Colossians 3.17. They will not worship where the Lord's Supper is not observed on the first day of the week. Every first day of the week. Acts 20 and verse 7, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continue his speech until midnight. They will not worship where mechanical instruments or music are used in worship because it's not authorized. All of us are to sing. Ephesians 5 and verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. They will not worship where a choir sings in the worship because all of us are required to sing. That shows the importance of our knowing the song in order to sing it. They will not worship where practices are contrary to God's will, putting on a drama 
instead of having preaching. In many places today, instead of a worship service, it looks more like a concert. That's not what the Lord wants. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship God. We're here to serve Him as He has directed. God is the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I've used this illustration before, and I like to use it because it's a good one. My wife's birthday is coming up in a little while, May the 7th, in case any of you are wondering. I can't forget it. But suppose she and I were to go to the mall, and she had told me today, that she, I think it was today, she, wanted, she would like to have a new dress. And suppose we were going to the mall together. I hate shopping. And she says, you know, there's a dress I really like. And I make mental note of that. I say, well, I'm going to get that for her for her uh, birthday. Well, as the case is, I procrastinate. I put things off. And... Uh, it comes time to, for her birthday. And I said, well, I better go to the mall and get it. Well, I head to the mall, and as I get close to the mall, I run across a bookstore, Jim. And I think, you know, I, let me go in here first for a few minutes. So I go into the bookstore, and I find a real good book that I want. And I think, well, I'll buy this for her, and then I'll read it. Do you think that would please her? Absolutely not. Well, in principle, that's the way it is in the religious world. People are wanting to worship as they are pleased and what pleases them and what entertains them, not because God requires it of them. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 23 of John 4 says, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in the spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God seeks our worship and he seeks true worship. I'm not here to please myself and neither are you. We're here to please God. The organization of the church. Will Jesus... Will Jesus worship and work with a church that is not organized according to the New Testament pattern? Would he worship with a church that is overseen by a synod, which is over a group of churches? Or would he worship in a church where one man is over the flock? It's not God's way either. I try to emphasize this often because I serve as one of the elders at Shelbyville Road. There are two right now. Originally there were three. When I was appointed, there were three. But I try to emphasize to the congregation it is the eldership that oversees the flock. It is the eldership that has authority. I personally have no authority. When I was being considered for the eldership in uh, whatever year it was, I can't remember now, I asked the elders at that time to give a month, I believe it was, maybe two months, but I think a month rather than just two weeks for any scripture objections to be made. And there were none that were turned in. But there was an elderly lady that asked me, she said, 
if you're made an elder, who's going to be your boss? I said, sister, you don't understand the eldership. I don't have any more authority than you do as an individual. It is the eldership that has authority. It is the eldership. A plurality of men. You remember in Acts 14, 23, that Paul and Barnabas on their return missionary journey appointed elders, plural, in every church. And Paul in Acts 20, verse 17, called for the elders of the church at, uh, of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. It is not God's way for one man to rule a congregation. And let me tell you something, I don't always get my way. Because there have been some things, that, some decisions that we have made that, uh, well, I didn't think they were right, but we went along, I went along with them because I didn't, not worth splitting the church over. Men have to learn to work together. But it is God's way that there be an eldership. Of course, men must meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You can't put men in that are unqualified. But we need men that are qualified to serve and who are willing to serve. That's the problem in many congregations. One of the greatest problems in the church today is a lack of men who are willing to become elders in the Lord's church. And I don't know the answer for that. But there's a need for it. We need good godly men serving as elders in the Lord's church. And we need to encourage men to do such. But with Jesus' worship, and that does not mean if you don't have elders that you're not a scriptural congregation, you're not an organized congregation at that point but you can still be scriptural and you should be working toward having elders where would Jesus go to church if he were here well he might want to he might be concerned about what the church is doing what is the work of the church God gave work for the church to do I like the passage in Galatians 2, 9 and 10, where Paul said, When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only we, they would that uh, we would remember the poor, as I also was forward to do. I like that passage because it really shows the twofold aspect of the work of the church. It involves the preaching of the gospel both near and far and the helping of the needy. Both of those things. That's the work of the church. And it involves both those things. And we must never lose sight of that as the Lord's people. Would Jesus attend and support a church that does not teach the truth on the plan of salvation? Years ago, I sat in an audience of a congregation where a brother was preaching and he indicated that baptism was not essential to salvation. That's false doctrine. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Would Jesus go to a church that teaches faith only? Where sprinkling is put for immersion? And then how long would Christ remain with the church that does not practice discipline? In our Bibles, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul there spoke to the church at Corinth, 
And there was a deplorable situation. There was a man that was living with his father's wife. And they were puffed up about the matter. They were puffed up. I think the idea is they thought they were sound when they were not sound. Because they weren't practicing discipline in reference to this, this brother that was living with his father's wife. And Paul says when you come together with, uh, to turn him over to the, to the devil. Turn him over to Satan. That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. Paul said there, now this we command you, that you would draw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. That's not a matter of choice. That's not a matter of judgment. That's as much a command as the command to teach and baptize. How long would Christ remain with a church that does not practice discipline? When Christ, the husband of his bride, the church, comes for his bride one day, Will he take the one that wears his name or will he take the, the one or those who wear a variety of names that he does not approve of and does not recognize? I think we know the answer to that. In our Bibles in Ephesians 5 and verse 27, Paul said that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, that it should be holy and without blemish. So what name do I wear tonight? What name do you wear tonight? Do you wear that worthy name? That special name? That name Christian? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in verse 11, Paul said, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and, of the, and the work of faith with power. A name that is worthy to be worn must be worn by those who are worthy to wear it. And that comes about by believing the gospel, John 8, 24. Repenting of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confessing your faith in Christ, Acts 8, 37, Romans 10, 10. By then being immersed into water for the remission of sins, there you put on Christ's name. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You put on Christ's name when you're baptized into him. You can wear his name. And then you must continue to walk in the light of God's word. 1 John 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a wonderful name. What a wonderful privilege to be able to wear the name Christian brings great responsibilities with it and yet it's a great privilege if you're a child of God but wayward we encourage you to come back if you're not a Christian why not become one this evening while together we stand and sing